And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. On the phone line with us today is Justin Sherritt. He's a professor at Mount St. Mary's College. He's taking his MDiv through RTS, and he's also teaching occasionally at the Dwork Hill Study Center. Justin, it's an honor to have you on with us today. It's great to be back, Dan. Thanks for having me. You wrote an article the other day uh, for the Dwork Hill Study Center, and it kind of caught our eye here. The title of it is Scientific Marxism and the Hatred of the Christian Scientist. And so um, maybe you could explain that title a little bit, and uh, I'll have some questions for you after that. Yeah, well, the genesis of the article came from uh, my wife, a conversation we were having as many of my articles do. She's a uh, science teacher at the local high school here at Goshen High School, and uh, she reads in the sciences quite often, and she was asking me a question, a philosophical question, of why I thought those that were in the ID movement or the intelligent design movement, why they were so hated by the scientific community. Mm. And I think behind the hatred of the Christian scientists um, there is this philosophical undercurrent of Marxism. Um, and I think Marx is behind a lot of the anti-Christian movements in this country and around the world. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the novel by uh, John Buckhan. John Buckhan uh, wrote, a, wrote a novel many years back called 39 Steps, and he says at one point in that novel, if you go down the staircase a few steps, you'll always find the Jew. Um, and there he was referencing Jesus. He says, Jesus is always behind everything. And I feel the same way about Marx. I think Marx is kind of hiding in the weeds behind everything. Well, that's interesting. And let's do this. Um, when we talk about Marx or Marxist, the Marxist vision or Marxism, can you describe what that is? Yeah, I think it's important, and uh, I'm not sure how many people in your audience are familiar with Marxism, but I think personally he's one of those really, really dangerous figures in history because everybody thinks they understand what Marxism is um, and understand a little bit about Marx, but most people don't have a good understanding like that. In that way and that way only, he's quite like Jesus. You know, we all have this kind of an understanding. We think we know about Jesus, but then when you study a little deeper, you're like, that guy's a little bit different than I thought. <laughs> right. Um, so I think we have a poor view of Marx, and uh, what you find when you study Marx and true Marxism is that Marxism is 100% antithetical to any sort of Christian project or Christian thought. Um, and I want to be careful to couch that. I don't believe, um, I'm not trying to condemn anyone that holds certain Marxist ideologies as being anti-Christian, but Marxism in and of itself is not compatible and is actually contrary to the Christian vision of the world. Um, now, the reason for that is basically Marx... Um, now, there's a long history here. I don't, know, I don't know how much time your audience has, but the, the way that this works is Marx has a, uh, is a character, a philosophical character, who is very, very indebted to those that come before him. Um, maybe one of the least original philosophical minds of all time. Marx is deeply indebted to Hegel, he's deeply indebted to Feuerbach, he's very, very deeply indebted to Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And if you don't have a proper understanding of those figures, and you just jump in and try to understand Marx, 
um, you're going to get lost in the weeds. Can you uh, help us a little bit? Um, I don't mind. We have some time here today. Yeah, if you have the time, I'll give the short and dirty here. That would be great. All right. So, so Marx is a young man. He uh, he first goes to study law and eventually gets in trouble at school. He was a he was a rabble rouser. He gets caught for public drunkenness and he's wounded in a duel. All sorts of these problems he has, um, and he eventually switches over to philosophy. Um, and he earns a doctorate in philosophy. And he says in his own writing that he attaches himself to the philosophy of the day. And the philosophy of Marx's day was that of uh, George Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel, or Hegel as most people just call him. And Hegel was this academic rock star throughout Europe at the time. And Marx believed that Hegel's great work, The Phenomenology of Mind, or The Phenomenology of Spirit, is where you could really understand Hegel's vision of the world. Um, and so we need to understand Hegel if we want to understand what Marx is all about. And Hegel's basic vision in the phenomenology of mind, his thesis, is that your mind, Dan, my mind, all minds are part of one collective universal mind or one universal spirit. And the whole purpose of history, history is marching towards this inevitable moment when we will all realize that all of us are part of this universal spirit. And once we realize that, history will reach its telos. So for Hegel in his project, he traces the history of minds developing to eventually to the point where he believes they'll reach the point where we realize we're all corporately part of this universal oneness. And anyone that's familiar with Marx at all can kind of start the underpinnings of his philosophy there, right? Because if you and I, Dan, if we are actually one mind, well, how am I going to treat you? I'm going to treat you exactly like myself. I would never want to disadvantage you in any way. I wouldn't want you to have more than I have. Um, And eventually I would have to have some sort of collective sharing of all things because that's the best way to treat yourself. Um which I think most people would identify with the strains of Marxism they're familiar with. Yeah, we, I think, see that there were um, a lot of college kids, for example, who, like some of the um, doctrines put forth by uh, one of the candidates, uh, an older man, who somehow (laughs) somehow related to these kids because of uh, basically wanting to give things away, I guess, and, and, and... Kind of an egalitarianism, is that the word? Uh, yeah, I think so. Redistribution. Yeah, and we have to realize, and I think most people realize at least this part of Marxism, that, that Marx, he's a figure that his impact on the world, it's, you can't even compare it to other philosophers. You can only really compare it to religious figures. Um, Marx's impact on the world can be comparable to Muhammad and Jesus as far as practical impact. Um, there's an incredible statistic that shows that in the second half of the 20th century, 40% of all people on Earth lived under some sort of Marxist regime. So our culture today, we're still, you know, we still have residual Marxism um, all over the place, and it's certainly prevalent in academia. Um, And yes, and it does go under the guise of some sort of a universal egalitarianism. but the strain I think that's important for your audience to get is this idea that when Hegel is talking about 
us all reaching this universal consciousness and history moving forward to that culminating point, um, that is something that's deeply anti-Christian in the way that he lays out. He believes that history has a purpose, and the culmination of history will be the enthroning of man as this somewhat of a deity, that man will be able to perfect himself. And the Christian scientist and any Christian is a stumbling block in the way of man reaching his inevitable cultural oneness. Um, and that's what that Marx is picking up on. Mm. There's another uh, really, really important figure in Marx's life that helps transition this. Right? So Hegel presents this thesis, and all of the young philosophers throughout Europe, they're, they're captivated by this thesis, and they start to call themselves the young Hegelians. Marx is one of those young Hegelians. But there's another famous one, uh, a guy by the name of Ludwig Feuerbach. And Feuerbach writes a book. Um, he writes a book in 1840s, the early 1840s. I think it's 1841. He writes a book called The Essence of Christianity. And it's a book that Marx and Engels, the young Marx and Engels, this is before they even wrote their Communist Manifesto in 1848, that they read Feuerbach's Essence of Christianity and could recite it chapter and verse. They loved the work. Oh, wow. And what Feuerbach does in that book is he says, Hegel's right. He says, history is marching towards this point where we're all going to realize we're part of a universal consciousness. But there's this stumbling block, Feuerbach says, that is keeping us from reaching that ultimate culmination. And he says that stumbling block is religion. If we could weed out religion, mankind would eventually reach this ultimate oneness. Religion separates, religion divides. Religion, in our case, predestines. And he says, if we hold to these views, mankind will never be able to kind of get together and reach that final teleological ending point. Just for our listeners' reference, the spelling on Feuerbach is F-E-U-E-R-B-A-C-H. That's correct. uh, It's not immediately intuitive, to me at least, but that's the the spelling. Um, So... Feuerbach really wants to um, eliminate religion. That's, to him, is a big impediment to making progress. Of course, and we all are familiar with Marx's kind of piggybacking off that idea, right? Marx famously says that religion is the opiate of the masses. Right. And that, too, is one of those phrases that I don't think a lot of people quite understand what Marx means when he says that. Um, When Marx claims that religion is the opiate of the masses, you must remember what an opiate is. But an opiate is something that you take when you're sick, when you're in pain, when something's wrong. But an opiate doesn't fix the problem. It just numbs the pain. Mm -hmm. So religion being the opiate of the masses for Marx, he's saying, we're in trouble here as humanity. There's something wrong here. We're not moving towards our destination. But we keep taking drugs. The drugs make us feel like everything's okay. But we're not going to fix the problem until we actually feel the pain. So he believes, too, like Feuerbach, that we must weed out religion in order to reach our ultimate culmination. The thing that Marx does is, so there's this lineage here, and I know this might be hard to follow on the radio. Um, So we have Hegel. Hegel says we all need to reach this ultimate point where we're one universal mind. Feuerbach agrees, and he says, yes, we can reach that if we eliminate religion. And then Marx tags along, and he says, yes, we need to eliminate religion. But that's not the major stumbling block, that's a minor stumbling block. 
The real stumbling block is class structure uh-huh. and capital and, and private property. If we could eliminate that and religion, then mankind will eventually realize that we're all part of this universal oneness, and there'll be no war, there'll be no stroke, uh, there'll be no trouble, there'll be no problems whatsoever. We reach that utopic state. Mm, yeah, that really strikes close to home as well. Uh, for those of us who believe in private property, uh, we feel many times that our property rights are being violated by an overbearing state. Absolutely. Um, just to uh, clarify something, um, again, the title of this article, Scientific Marxism and the Hatred of the Christian Scientist. The phrase Christian Scientist is definitely not the same as the cult Christian science. Correct. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> we want to make that quite clear. <laughs> So uh, you get into these discussions with your wife. That's very interesting. So this one came up. She's asking, um, why do people basically have a hatred for the scientific community that is a Christian community and and believes in intelligent design? And being in science herself, she apparently feels this uh, pressure. Yes, she does. And and we we didn't get to quite answer the question because there's so much uh, legwork here. So, so <laughs> someone in your audience might be asked, I, I have an understanding of what Hegel's doing and what Auerbach's doing and what Marx is doing, but why would this lead them to hate the Christian scientists? Yeah. So the answer to that would, would obviously be the, uh, the Christian doesn't share that same teleological look at history, right? The Christian doesn't believe that history is marching forward to this culminating point where mankind will enthrone himself, and we will be able to perfect ourselves. We believe in a different type of history. We, leave in a, uh, we believe in a different type of time. And for you and I, Dan, and for many of your listeners in the audience, the culminating point of history for us was the Incarnation. Right? History was moving towards that point, and from that point on, time is different. Because as Second Peter says, and many other places in the New Testament, that is the beginning of the end, right? The end has already encroached upon history now, and now we live in the end times, the time from the point of Christ's incarnation till the second coming. Right. And he will be enthroned as king. Mankind will not be enthroned as king. <laughs> yes. You know, you've just used a, another big word, and that is the uh, teleological uh, vision. Can you explain uh, the use of that word, please? Yeah, that, uh, the genesis of that word, it, root, it, it goes all the way back to Aristotle and the Greeks, and it, uh, the stem there is telos, that's T-E-L-O-S. And telos just means a design or a purpose. So if you have a teleological vision of history, uh, you don't agree with Shakespeare that all is sound and fury signifying nothing. You believe that there's a march forward, a definitive culminating end point, that there's a purpose, there's a design to everything. Now, Christians share that view with Marx, the Marxists, but we believe that there's a different design, and the end of history isn't man becoming king, but it is Christ coming back to redeem his fallen humanity, mm-hmm. where he will fully be realized as the king of the universe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's helpful. So that there's a deep strain that at the deepest level, you could, you could, you could, uh, you could believe in some social programs, and you could believe in universal health care and things like this and be a fine Christian, but you can't be a Marxist in the truest sense. Mm-hmm. You can't be a Marxist in the real philosophical sense and be a Christian. 
because in the truest sense, Marxism is the original sin. It's Adam's sin. It's the sin in the garden of saying, I refuse to be subordinate to God. I will be king. I will know all. I will have God-like knowledge. Um, and that's just not compatible with Christianity. I would think there are any number of people, maybe without realizing it, kind of innocently, perhaps they went to the government schools or whatever and or picked this stuff up in college, and they're little Marxists, but maybe they have no idea that they are. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I We use, like I said before, right, just last half, you know, the last half of the 20th century, when you have 40% of the world under Marxist regime, the residue of Marxism is still everywhere. So we speak and we write in a very Marxist way. Mm. Anytime somebody says things like, now in the age of science, right, that's, the, that's that teleological history thing now, yeah. that history has progressed to a certain point where now we can think this way. Um, th- that's not a Christian way of thinking, right? But in now, now that we've reached this point in human history, we realize this. Um, so, yeah, we, we have a, a cultural Marxism that we've inherited that's so prevalent, you don't even realize it's there. Mm. You know, many Christians, we speak in these Marxist terms all the time. The idea of science um, for the Christian is really a beautiful calling in one's life where their approach is to um, explore God's creation, look at cause and effect, look at predictability, um, do experiments, measure, document, get facts, and then be able to predict outcomes based on those good models and then go back and tweak the models. So it seems like good science is a kind of uncovering of the glory of God that he has hidden in creation or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's why science we've seen has, you know, has progressed so much in the Judeo-Christian world, where it languished in other parts of the world that refused to accept that basic ideology or that cultural worldview. There's the great sociologist Rodney Stark, um, and he's a sociologist that has pointed that out, that the reason that the West progressed scientifically is because they had faith in this thing called reason, Mm. that the universe wasn't random, that it was ordered in such a way that if we put the scientific method to this strange universe, we would see the order of God, or in Van Til's words, we'd be able to think God's thoughts after him. Mm -hmm. Um, If you don't share that worldview, um, then science turns into strange mystical mythology, and that's why in many parts of the world, science never progressed past the idea of alchemy and and astrology, whereas in the West it turned into chemistry and astronomy. Yeah, yeah, so true. More thoughts on this article that you wrote, Scientific Marxism and the Hatred of the Christian Scientist. And by the way, that article is posted on the Dworkil Study Center, and that's spelled D-W-A-A-R-K-I-L-L. Uh, any more comments about your article here? Well, maybe one or two, I guess, uh, a better way to comment on anyone's article is always to go back to Chesterton. He always has a, a wonderful way of looking at things. And uh, a lot of people look at the Christian scientist or the Christian worldview, and they see these things, what they see as mystical and strange and weird. I mean, those are those Christians that, 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 that they worship this thing called the Trinity. It doesn't make any sense. Three gods in one. And Chesterton, when he explored Marxism, and he certainly wasn't a fan of it, 
he says, these Marxists who will condemn the Christian or dismiss them as being absurd for believing in three gods in one or this God that is three in one, he says, well, on the Marxist vision, you end up worshiping corporate humanity or the religion of humanity, as Chesterton constantly calls it, and you have this strange deity of a hundred million people in one, as Chesterton says, where you neither confound the persons nor divide the substance, as he says. So mankind has no problem looking at, hey, we should worship and do this for the betterment of humanity. There's hundred million or six billion people in one, whereas they look at the Christian God and say, oh, that's a strange thing, three in one. Um, so Chesterton always brings that note of sanity to these things. <laughs> And I'm thinking, too, uh, uh, do you have an advice for, suppose there is this young person um, or very young adult who, without meaning to and without even knowing it, um, kind of became a little Marxist, and they realize, oops, and it's like the scales are starting to fall off their eyes, and they say, oh, no, <laughs> I can't believe this. Look what I got into, and I didn't even realize it. Anything that they could do to help them learn some more, and, and move in the, in the godly direction? Well, I think God has given us this wonderful thing by, you know, common grace to everybody called common sense. Um, and if we could strip away some of the education, I'll put that in scare quotes that we've had, <laughs> you start to see that these things just in common sense don't make any sense, right? Uh, on the Marxist vision, he believes, you have to believe on the Marxist vision, that mankind is naturally good. Mm. Right? Because if we're going to eventually worship this corporate humanity, it's man is naturally good, but religion has gotten in the way, and capitalism has gotten in the way, and class structure has gotten in the way. But eventually you'll get back to some sort of Edenic state where man is originally good. Um, Marx truly believed that. He believed in, at the end of his, his great work, Das Kapital, he writes Das Kapital in 1867, that is the, that's the, the, the heart of Marxist theology there, or philosophy, I should say. And in Das Kapital, at the end, he says, mankind will eventually reach this utopic state if we can eventually get rid of private property and fundamentally transform human character or human nature. Hmm. And Marx believed that once we got rid of private property, that mankind would eventually stop being evil. And I just think the common sense way of looking at the world is, do you, do you think that's the case? Do you think mankind <laughs> is naturally good? Do we act like that, the young person in your audience? How do you act? I mean, <laughs> we're evil by nature. We, mm. we, we tend, things tend to disorder. Things tend to not go back to order. Um, so I think just looking at the world, you realize that that just doesn't seem to be the case. Mankind, and there's something innately wrong with it. Um, all mankind... All people groups across all time have realized there's something wrong with man. It needs to be fixed. It needs to be made right. It's not just something that will naturally become better. Um, now, the Marxist isn't completely insane. I might have painted them that way, right? Because if you look at the last, you know, the last century, you would look, well, how could anyone believe this, that mankind would actually get better? Look at the places that have, have implemented Marxist ideology, you know, Red China and, and Communist Russia and Venezuela and Cuba. These places have all been drenched in bloodshed. But what the Marxist would say is, well, it, this takes time, these things, to eradicate the evil that has been brought about by capitalism and class structure. You eventually, as Marx says, need to crack some eggs to make some omelets. 
you know, that if we waited long enough, eventually mankind would no longer be greedy, would no longer be evil. Um, and as Winston Churchill says, uh, it doesn't seem like we ever see the omelet. <laughs> well, that's interesting. Today we've been talking with Justin Sherritt. He's a professor at Mount St. Mary's College, working on his MDiv through RTS. Uh, he teaches occasionally at the Dwork Hill Study Center. He's uh, quite a philosopher in his own right. Uh, pretty soon he'll be doing a Sunday school class at Westminster Presbyterian Church, and that's going to be a very fun class for people that want to learn a lot. So, uh, Justin, uh, in the last 30 seconds, uh, any resources or anything that you would like to direct our listeners to? Resources? Well, it's it's hard to direct. I initially would want to say uh, you, you want to read the primary sources, but... Uh, you need a guide through there. So you need to go back to Rousseau. Originally, we didn't talk about Rousseau today, but you got to read Rousseau's Discourse on Inequality if you want to understand where Marx is coming from. And then you need a nice guide through Hegel. Um, there's actually a wonderful guide through Hegel from a source that you wouldn't expect uh, from uh, Peter Singer, the, uh, the famed, very, very anti-Christian ethicist. does a very, very fair assessment of... Uh, of Marx in a short book, an introduction to Marx. Mm-hmm. That would be a good source if you're interested in that. That's Peter Singer's book on Marx, an introduction to Marx. You want to go back and read Rousseau's Discourse on Inequality, which was uh, published the same year that we claimed our independence in 1776. Um, and then you would need some sort of a source to take you through, a secondary source, any kind of a Cambridge companion to Hegel um, would be helpful to kind of throw off these crass, strange, unphilosophical understanding of Marx and really understand the genesis of Marx. And then hopefully as a Christian realize these things are not compatible with Christianity and they're things that are very, very dangerous to the life of Christians and the life of the Church. Mm. Very good. Well, Justin Sherrod, I want to thank you for joining us today on A Plain Answer. And dear listener, please join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer. Justin We look forward to you joining us again. Thanks, Dan.